G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. Um, we don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to iTunes and leave us a review. <clears throat> Obviously, a five-star review will be will be great. Um, and there's been a, a couple recently, and one one said it was hilarious, which I'm not not quite sure is the the right uh, the right sort of uh, comment. But who, who cares? They gave us a five-star review. Thank you very much for that. It really helps us with our iTunes metrics um, and definitely makes it easier for other um, others to, to access this information. So um, today we're going to talk to Charlotte Dawson. So she's one of our fabulous lecturers uh, here in ophthalmology um, who uh, is interested in, in all sorts of ophthalmological diseases and ophthalmological presentations of other diseases um, and uh, just uh, just generally a, a fabulous person. So, so we thought what we'd, we'd start um, by doing was actually just going through uh, an ophthalmological exam. And I, and I know we're, like, we're very fortunate here uh, at the RBC to actually have um, ophthalmology service, but actually not many vet schools have. It's only recently we were just talking before we we started that that uh, Bristol have got some ophthalmologists now, so that that's that's great for them. Um, but but I think that ophthalmology is one of the things that actually frightens a lot of people. Would you would you agree, Charlotte? Oh, yeah. Thank you for thank you for coming <laughs> along. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And um, I think one of the biggest questions um, and one of the biggest learning objectives that the students want to get out of their couple of weeks that they spend with us um, is when to refer um, and how to do an ophthalmic exam. I think they are the biggest two worries of a final year going out, thinking about starting their new job and um, those those sorts of things. Do you, do you think as well that ophthalmological patients, when they present, like because people, as in clients, they they obviously can see externally. So I think that that often animals are presenting because they have, um, you know, their itchy skin or they're vomiting, but they can they can see their eyes whether there's any blepharospasm or discharge, etc. And then I suppose they might have more questions on that. Kind of like a, you know, they, they told me going through vet school that. Um, a quarter of every consult or maybe even half will have a behavior element mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. i'm sure that there's quite a lot of yeah ophthalmological elements in in a lot of uh, definitely lot of consults. i think um a lot of um clients do tend to look at their dog's faces quite a lot it's a big part of human human communication and so i think it's quite and, and something i certainly do with my own dog is to look directly in his at his face and um and at his eyes and so one of the main reasons that they might present to you as a general practitioner or to us um, in a referral level is that their eye just looks different. It doesn't look right and they can't really explain any more than that. Um, another reason is that they might be sore, uncomfortable, so blepharospasm, um, closing the eye, having discharge. And another reason is that they come to you and they say the eye looks sore. And what they really mean by that is the eye looks red. Um, and so that's another presenting sign. So when you're quizzing the owner on what exactly it is that have made them bring the patient to you, it's really important to clarify that when they say the eye looks sore, do they mean that it's squinting, which often they don't? Um, that's us thinking that that's sore as a veterinary practitioner. Um, and actually they mean that the eye is red. And then when you get to the bottom of the presenting sign being the eye red then you can start quizzing them more in the history about when's it red is it red all the time is it does it go blue you know there are other things then that you can get into but um 
learning to extrapolate what the owner actually means is was one of the biggest learning curves for me um, in my career in ophthalmology because um, you had to sort of work out what exactly they meant because sore for me was blepharospasm when actually when you got down to it that they, they were actually meaning the eye was red. Yeah, so having like your terminology being um, what what the owners think, I think it's probably half the battle with uh, with with talking to people, right? We yeah, don't, we don't want to mislead them or misinterpret what what they're saying as, yeah. as well, and it's probably. Uh, more important, the more specific, more specific you get. So, I was just wondering if we get, so if we if we talk about a general approach to 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 an eye, um, I, did, I mean, <clears throat> I'd imagine that most people have their, their their own sort of standard approach. But imagine in general, just looking and seeing if the eyes are um, symmetrical, mm-hmm. and um, you can normally tell. I, I'd imagine whether their pupils are myotic or, mm-hmm. or, or dilated, and whether they're both the same. Like yep. we, we're quite good at looking at symmetry, aren't we? In, yep. in general, yep. um, and then seeing if there's any 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 redness or tumours, masses that are associated mm-hmm. with the eye. Cherry eye, which has yep. probably got a fancier name than than that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> excuse me, excuse me for that. Um, and then, then my my approach, because I know that if you if you start putting fluid into the eye or anything like that, then um, obviously you're going to take away your ability to do a Schirmer tear test. Yep. So, so would you would you agree that if you if you're going to do a Schirmer tear test, which probably you, you should in, in in most cases, unless there's a, yep. uh, an obvious thing, then then to to uh, to do that initially yeah totally so um i watch them walk down the corridor walk into the room or welcome them into the room see how the dog's navigating look at them from a distance so before i even touch the animal so uh, we sort of tend to teach our students here that it's hands-off examination um and that's just by looking for symmetry all those things that you discussed discharge blepharospasm um pupil size etc and then the first thing I do when they're on the table if I think um, that it's not contraindicated would be a Schirmer test and the only time that I wouldn't want to do that is if I can see a great big crater and I'm worried about a corneal perforation or I'm worried about a very deep corneal ulcer that may perforate um, then I wouldn't do it in that eye um but yeah most of the time uh, a test can be really really helpful um, and to do it exactly before you start manipulating and um and putting dyes and etc in the eyes is a good time to do it. Now, do, do you have any uh, any tips? I know, like a Schirmer-Tier test sounds very simple in in uh, in in practice, or if you if you read it, right? So you, you just get one of the strips and you sort of bend a little bit over and you and you put it under yeah. the <laughs> limbus of the eyelid. Is that? Uh, no, just just um just between the lower eyelid and and the cornea. Um, so the limbus is the part of the eye that um is the connection between the white of the eye so if, as we're i know that the guys at home can't see us but we're looking at each other um so you can see or if you find a human or a dog to look at as you're listening um the white of the eye um connects to the colored part of the eye which is the iris um and naturally the cornea is clear so we don't see that on examination but the joining of the white of the eye the sclera the conjunctiva the iris and the cornea is the limbus so it's the change in color part Absolutely, my, my, absolutely, my, my mistake. The, uh, the 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 curve. I was thinking, well, does that have a name? The uh, the the ridge of your of your uh, uh, just the eyelid margin is eyelid what margin. I would call it. Yeah. Okay. So so by putting that in, it sounds very simple in practice, but actually, mm. it's it- a nightmare sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> especially if you have a very tricky customer of a of a patient. Um, 
So I've learned a few techniques, um, which generally include um, trying not to be seen. So coming from as lateral as possible, which sounds like you're doing some form of comedy sketch. And some owners think that we do um, ophthalmology yoga, which some of our students that have joined us have seen us do as well. Lots of bending and um, changing direction. But yeah, so essentially coming from very lateral um, and putting the strip in the lower lateral um, one third of the eyelid will help because you're not directly in the visual field so they don't look at you and sort of blink and move and actually I find that if you um, lower the lower eyelid and move it slightly laterally you get an l-shaped kink in the lower eyelid and that can help you just to position you get a little gap or a gaping you know a gape and that can help you to position the Schirmatier test strip just there um and then again, if it, if you put it in the lower lateral, um, again, the dog doesn't see it and it, it's sort of less irritating for them for that one minute that it needs to stay there. So it doesn't matter in what position in the lower eyelid it, it is? No, no. We, do, we generally tend to put it in the lower lateral for ease um, of putting it there and also it's less distracting for the patient. Excellent, excellent. And, uh, and 60 seconds yeah, for 60 each seconds. eye, which, which can take at least uh, most of a 15-minute consult, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Especially have a dog with very tight eyelids, like a chihuahua, for example, that doesn't give you a lot of flexibility to move it, um, that's also trying to bite you, can be challenging. <laughs> and, and do you, do you uh, go to a point that it's, uh, if, it's, if, it's, if it's normal, mm-hmm. um, and about you can kick in, Charlotte, what, what normal is, but if it is normal, do you go up? In, in the in a shorter time period yeah certainly um out. yeah totally especially if it falls out within 30 seconds and it's already reached 15 which would be the lower end of of normal um in 30 seconds and i would just i wouldn't worry about putting it in again i would just remove it at that point excellent excellent okay so if we if we do a uh, a sherman tear test and say um um maybe a, a we'll, we'll have a patient that we think they might have a corneal um, uh, ulceration so would or or if not would you would you always use fluorescein um, to stain the cornea um it very much depends so if i can see a very obvious corneal ulcer um then um uh, uh, yeah so yes i would use it if i can see a very obvious corneal ulcer that's very deep and i'm worried that um, any manipulation of the eye might cause a perforation then i probably wouldn't go ahead and use fluorescein at that point um but most of the time um if i'm suspicious of a corneal ulcer or a tear film instability that's another reason that we might use fluorescein um then um i would i would go ahead and and use it there are occasions when I don't because I'm sort of comfortable in my ophthalmic exam and I know it's going to be fluorescein positive and then I don't put that patient through um, through that, that test. But generally speaking, it's it's good practice to, to do that as long as you're comfortable that you're not going to cause the eye to rupture by manipulating it. Okay. So I know that there's different techniques to, to use fluorescein and some mm. people take the strips out and just, just put them in the eyelid, kind of how you were, how were you talking about using a Schirmer tear test mm. and... Um, I was ex- explaining to you uh, before when the mics were closed that I'd, I'd, I'd put it in a, in a barrel of a syringe mm-hmm. and drop some water and then yep. put that in the eye, I suppose, because it's just fluorescent dye that you're trying to, to, to stain the cornea in, that, in the, uh, the hydrophobic portion of the eye, yep. right? So is there, it, does, does it matter what, how, you, uh, how you put fluorescein in the eye? And, and as we did, the, the question would be, do, do you need to rinse it out with, with, uh, yeah. with water or saline? They're really good questions. And um, so I guess I have 
two two main um, comments. So um, using a multi-dose vial of fluorescein, so something that is open for a long period of time that's not disposable or single use. Um, there have been studies that have shown that there's bacteria in them. So it's good practice to use a single dose um, or, or certainly use a preservative free single dose vial for that day and then throw it away. So you can use the minims, um, which is a fluorescein solution. Um, and then here we tend to use the um, the strips just because that's what we get hold of, not for any particular reason. And the important thing to know about the strips is that if you put them dry um, into the eye, it's quite painful. Um, and also it can cause you a false positive if you apply a dry strip directly to the cornea. So what we tend to do is just is wet it first and then put a single drop onto the eye without touching the cornea. And then we do rinse it out. The other option, which I do in, in aggressive dogs, um, is to put the whole strip, as you just said, in a, in a five mil syringe with um, sterile saline or, or sterile water for injection. Um, and then I squirt that into the eye from a distance if they won't let you get anywhere near them. Um, so I do that sometimes. Um, and the key about the reason to wash out is that um, fluorescein is uptaken by mucus. Um, so you can get false positives if you don't rinse. Okay. Um, and the other thing is that um, if you do have an ulcer that is deep and you don't flush out the fluorescein, you can get um, actually a false positive on aqueous flare by the time it gets to me because the fluorescein goes um, all the way through the cornea and ends up in the anterior chamber. So um, I've had a lot of cases um, come to me with an eye full of fluorescein and I I was unsure at the time whether it was aqueous flare or if it was the fluorescein from the test that the, the vet had done uh, prior to referral. So that can be a bit confusing for us sometimes. <laughs> you just go through that again. So, so, so the, the eye will actually take up the, the fluorescein. So, so in, yeah. in, in a normal uh, um, so a normal eye will actually uptake fluorescein stain. Um, so it tends to be more so... It, yes, but it tends to be more so when you have a break in the epithelium, so an ulcer, because um, then it manages to travel through and goes through that first um, epithelial barrier quite quickly. Um, it depends how much fluorescein you put onto a normal eye, but um, usually the epithelium will stop it from traveling so far in. So it's normally if you have an ulcer, mm. then it goes all the way through and into the anterior chamber. I suppose because... Uh, coming at it from obviously being the person that might put the fluorescein mm. in the first time, I never even thought that that would be an issue for you. Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's really funny. And I hadn't, especially when I was um, starting off in my training, I'd never experienced this before either. Um, and so it took me a long time to realise that this was was actually what I was seeing. Um, and, and it often takes until the next day when it's completely gone uh, that you say, oh, OK, that's what it was. It was the fluorescein. <laughs> okay. OK, so uh, you put, put, put it in and, and then uh, and then and then rinse it out, as, as you said, and uh, and then have a have a look with a, a obviously if you if you can and you have a slit lamp, which are which are pretty cool, then then to use a, um, a circular aperture and over the over the whole eye initially. Do you look do you um, look yeah. like grossly like you would do with a microscope? At yep. a distance initially, or do yeah. You... So I do. I tend to shine the blue light um, onto the eye and look from a distance, and then um, with more subtle ulcers, less obvious ones, or a tear film problem, then I would go ahead and use um, the magnification of the of the slit lamp. Um, Marion, who's one of our other colleagues, um, 
who who works with us here um she always says if she was uh, stranded stranded on a desert island and could only take one piece of ophthalmic equipment with her it would be her direct because you can look at every part of the eye and that's what we all have available to us mostly anyway um so yeah you can you can go ahead and and look so not through the direct but you can shine the blue light close to the eye and look um outside of it separately to it to see if there's any uptake of stain um yeah so that's what that's what i would do i was just thinking i've got so many questions for you uh, <laughs> anyway so so uh, so that so that's great and, and a direct that does have the, the blue disc yes. so you can yeah, just have a blue do, yeah. big circle and, and and have a look mm -hmm. so is it is it easier or, or not is it easier but can you use the um uh that technique as well to look a bit more in depth at the, at the cornea do you have to have so what settings do you tend yeah, to have so to change it to that is um that's a really good question so most people don't know how to use they're direct to its maximal effect so the reason or the the sort of primary reason that i would go to reach for my direct is to look at the retina which i think most most people would do um so you have um the the lens wheel which is all those funny little numbers um, and you have positive numbers and negative um numbers and it depends on which country you're in as to which colors are which so that's something to look up as to where you are and what equipment you have um so usually speaking if you don't wear glasses and you don't have any visual deficits yourself then you would use that lens wheel on zero if you wear glasses um or contacts um well hang on if you wear glasses then you need to take them off to use it and then you need to set the lens wheel onto whatever your prescription is plus one minus one plus nine you know whatever it is that you wear if you're wearing contacts then you don't take them off so you don't take them out and you use zero as your neutral setting and then the retina should be in focus um and then what you do is if you see something in the retina that is not in focus you move the lens wheel left and right and it will then either focus on it for you or it will then get more blurry and you can work out whether that lesion on the retina is swelling or bulging towards you or going further away depending on if you're adding plus or minus um, diopters to to the instrument um when you think about um then using that equipment to look at the whole of the eye which i don't generally do because i have other uh, equipment but if if that's what you've got available to you then you have um you focus then on your retina at zero and then you move through um, the diopters and what will happen is it will take you through the various different segments of the eye um, and then you'll get to the lens and then eventually to, to 20 which is the maximum it will go to and that will be the focus on the cornea. So you can actually see really in-depth things throughout the whole eye um, with just that one machine and then obviously it has its blue light on it which you can then check your fluorescent uptake of stain for ulcers and then the other thing that most of them have is um, a red free light which is green in color um, and that will help you to determine if there's bleeding in the retina or if it's actually pigment so um, what you do is you look at the retina like we just explained um, and you would put it on the green uh, light and if it's blood it will be black because you're using a red free light green in color so the blood will be black and the pigment will remain brown and the best thing that you can do is um usually speaking unless you have um eyes like myself or yours done where we're um color dilute and we have 
blue eyes um most of the time there's pigment in the back of the eye um and so you can compare the spot that you're worried about to that pigment or, in fact, to the retinal blood vessel. So the retinal blood vessel will be black and then you can compare and look at the difference um, in that spot. So you've always got a comparison. Yeah. And, and you're, you're describing it as a, as a, uh, a red-free light, as, yes. as green. Are, yes. Are there other <laughs> red-free lights? Or it's just green, the ophthalmological That is testing my, pushing my knowledge. I'd have to kind of look that up again, Dom. (laughs) (laughs) You've caught me out. It's an interesting way to to describe it, though. I just, maybe that's great. So you can always look at what a blood vessel looks like. Yeah, and then compare. And then compare what you're you're seeing otherwise. Well, you went went through, uh, went through a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of things there. So, 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 you know, the majority of people, as as you said, do have a a direct ophthalmoscope Mm -hmm. and, and, do you think that's because it's easier to to train on or or just is that because um it's the the most versatile bit of equipment um i think it's probably on balance the most economical piece of ophthalmic equipment you could buy because it gives you a view of most of the eye for the least amount of money so if you think about us in referral practice um or those that have gone ahead and and bought um their slit lamps and indirects in practice and are are really keen on ophthalmology with your slit lamp you can only really get as far as uh, the lens or just just past the lens and into the vitreous you can't look at the retina with your slit lamp and then with your indirect you can only look um you know your lens and your and your indirect you can only really look at the retina so you're stuck with yes you can look at both of those things in isolation in a lot of detail but in order to get the most out of your money and look at the most of the eye and it works the most for you um the direct ophthalmoscope would would fit that bill and and also when we're using a direct ophthalmoscope, we should have our so use our right eye to have a look at their mm-hmm. right eye and our left eye to look at their left eye. Yeah. Do, you, do you find um have you ever met ophthalmologists that don't do that? Uh, there are there are some. Yeah, there are some. Okay. Um and some people um do the over the top method. So if they own, if they can only use their right eye say that that's their dominant eye then they actually look at the patient's left eye by going over the top of them from the other side and then and then peering in from above um that's another example of ophthalmology yoga (laughs) (laughs) um but uh yeah it's it's much easier if you train yourself to use your right eye for the right eye and your left eye for the left eye jeff smith who is one of the ophthalmologists in sydney talk talk us that because you could at least you move away if the dog moves yeah, yeah. towards you or, yeah, the, or the cat moves towards you so it's more of a, a safety issue yeah. rather than i, I do, do, do human ophthalmologists do that as well oh i have no idea <laughs> i'll have to find one and ask them not sure um generally speaking it also helps you to visualize the whole of the back of the eye because if you're looking at the patient's um left eye with your right eye then you your nose will be bumping with the patient's nose and then you don't see the whole of the of the retina so i think it just helps you to look more freely around but absolutely in our patients it's really important because you need to be able to move if if they're not appreciating you being that close yeah okay 
So, uh, so we, we've got, gone over the uh, having a look at the, the cornea and, and, and what you're looking for when you, when you, when you put fluorescein in mm-hmm. is, is the, to see if there's any fluorescein uptake. Yeah. But if I'm trying to remember correctly, we have a, a hydrophobic layer, then a hydrophilic layer, mm-hmm. then a hydrophobic layer. Yeah. So you can have a deep ulcer that might look similar, but it might have like a little ring around it. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. So um, when we think about these donut shaped lesions, um, they're certainly ones to refer as an emergency because um, what happens is if you have um, no uptake of stain, a ring of uptake of stain, and then no uptake of stain in the centre, that means you've gone all the way through into Decimase membrane and that would be a desmetaseal. Um, and so they're the ones um, that certainly we want to try and um, fix surgically before they before they rupture. Um, so that's really important and a really good point to remember is that if you have this weird donut shape lesion that's not uptaking stain in the middle one of your in fact your first thought and your first differential should be a desmetaseal i have seen the occasional foreign body which is presented like that which is quite unusual but um yeah generally speaking it would be a desmetaseal and can you ever get a scenario charlotte where the um that inner layer of the cornea actually bulges up to hide donut if that makes sense so so that that layer comes out of the cornea and and so it almost looks as if it's continuous as a hydrophobic layer yeah um i think one of the times where that actually happens is when you have a full perforation and iris prolapse so you have um this sort of tissue um that may actually uptake stain because it would be sort of granulation tissue like fibriny clot on top of the iris which fills in the defect um and so that can be quite confusing um to to look at one of the clues that might help you is that there might be blood inside the eye so if it's been so severe that the actual eye has ruptured then you may have some blood in there or you might actually see an anterior synechia so you might actually appreciate that the iris is coming bulging forward to that space um but sometimes um, that can be a real challenge to work out what's happening and, and yeah, it can be very confusing. Okay. And then um, maybe before we, we get into talking a little bit about the retina, I don't know where, where it's more appropriate to, to talk about the, um, the, the third eyelid and mm-hmm. to look behind that. Mm-hmm. Or, or at what point in the eye, ocular exam do you, do you actually do that? Um, so it's a really important step because we can have, um, and probably by far and away the most common thing I saw in practice, third eyelid related was a foreign body stuck behind it and an ulcer because of it. Um, so I tend to, um, so we, our patients come in, we've assessed their sort of vision, their symmetry, put them on the table, we've done our show tear test, then we do reflexes and responses, um, and that involves menace, PLR, palpebrals, all of those. Um, and then what I like to do a bit like when you're training um, as a vet student to do your physical exam it kind of doesn't matter really what order you look at the different parts of the eye in as long as you have an order that you remember so for example I was taught for my physical exam you start from the nose and go to the tail then you won't forget anything some people say listen to the heart first so you don't forget to do that and work your way around so as long as you have your order and you know how to do it generally speaking Um, I work my way from outside to in Um, so I start with the eyelids um, then I would look at the third eyelid at that point um, then the 
conjunctiva, then the cornea, anterior chamber, iris, lens, vitreous retina, intraocular pressure last. So so when you're looking at the third eyelid, how, how do you actually do that? Because I'm not sure, maybe I should tell you how, how I did it, but I'd, I'd rather listen to you <laughs> just in case it's... Uh... <laughs> A bit off base. So if you don't see a great big crater in the cornea and you're not worried that the eyes are going to burst, then um, you can certainly um, depress very slightly the eye. So the third eyelid pops up. Um, when you retropulse the eye, um, it's just a passive motion of the third eyelid moving up um, because of its location and its orientation to the globe. So that will give you a nice view of the front of the third eyelid. You can look for masses or redness or pigment or follicles. Um, and then what we generally do is um, to numb the surface of the eye. So we put a drop of um, proximeticane or tetracaine. Um, and then we just gently use um, some flat forceps to um, lift up and pull out and invert the third eyelid so you can look behind it once the eye's numb, which usually takes 30 seconds or so. And did, did you, is that the way that you've always done that? or Because I, I suppose that, um, I, I suppose maybe some people might feel that they don't want to cause any mm -hmm. crushing injury or mm -hmm. injury to the eye if the patient moves or they're holding something relatively mm -hmm. blunt or potentially sharp near the eye. Like, yep. what, is, th is there a, you know, what, what would you say to, to um, Some people, people use um, cotton buds or Q-tips, which are a really nice and safe way and probably more accessible um, than, you know, forceps. You might look at the end and not be sure if that's going to hurt um, the tissue or not so um, you can certainly use a, a q-tip to look behind and that can be quite nice to fish out the foreign body as well whilst you're there you just um, go slightly deeper and, and fish it out so yeah and, and would you wet the q-tip yeah I would in that in that circumstance yeah okay okay and then and then you can just push it sort of behind the, mm -hmm. the third eyelid and, yeah so and I'd usually it'd usually start um at the um at the sort of medial aspect of it at the at the top dorsally um because that's probably the first place you're going to get to the leading edge of the third eyelid that's not the cornea um, and then you can go in at that point if you go as the third eyelid comes laterally and ventrally the lower eyelid kind of gets in your way um so you don't you can't fit it behind very easily so i tend to go um, as I said, medially and dorsally, that's the easiest and first place you're going to reach the leading edge of the third eyelid. It's almost like there's a little pocket there. Don't yeah, you? it's so a pouch. The lateral, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so that, that's that's good. Okay, we're probably a bit, a bit disjointed here, aren't we? We're talking about different uh, uh, different aspects of looking at the looking at the eye. Okay, then. So, could I ask um, somebody down the the uh, all the? Well, I was thinking when you were talking about the eyelids as well. So, so. Do you, do, you, do you avert the eyelids to have a look if there's any mm -hmm. uh, snickier? No, not snickier, sorry. <laughs> no, don't worry, adhesions, adhesions especially yeah. in cats, yeah, with herpes virus suspected, for example, then you can get adhesions of um, the conjunctiva. So, yeah, and also there are, really importantly, hairs, so ectopic cilia can come through the conjunctival surface on the underneath of the eyelid, most usually the upper eyelid. Um, so, yeah, we avert them and have a look um, as much as the patient will tolerate it, which they usually don't mind so much. Um, but we have a good look underneath the upper and, and lower eyelids. And are they, so the hairs that you, you can identify there, are, are they 
obvious to see because I, I I must admit I didn't I didn't see a, a, a lot in in practice. They can actually be really tricky to see, um, and they're often very fine, not very dark in color, um, and so it can be a challenge. In some heavily pig- pigmented dogs, it can be quite helpful because they might they have a little like circle of pigment around them, and the conjunctiva is normally pink in color, and so it's like a little target saying, "Hey, I've got a hair here." Um, so that can be helpful sometimes. Okay, and are there are there certain breeds that you're more likely to look for that in? Um, not so much breeds, but age. So um, young dogs, sort of less than eighteen months old, um, with a corneal ulcer that is dorsal in the cornea and has waxed and waned um so it's been recurrent so it heal appears to heal and then comes back again and that's usually because the hair falls out after its normal eight week cycle allows the cornea to heal and then grows again and then causes an ulcer in the same place so it's usually a historical um thing and the age of the patient that helps us with that okay and excellent. Uh, so we we've gone through the uh, looking at the eye eyelids, third eyelid, the corneas. Um, so so now, what, as you approach, I, I suppose I would always jump in really to to the to the retina, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily looking at the at the iris. I suppose I was. I, I don't think I was ever very confident in thinking about a um, iridial angle. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but um, but have a look at the at the at the at the retina itself, and I'd imagine, um, I'm not imagine most of the time. I must, I must ha- have to say, unless unless I was very concerned, I probably didn't dilate the the mm-hmm. pupil mm-hmm. every time and just try to see what I could what I could get out of a direct uh, a direct ophthalmoscopic exam. Yeah. But but would. Um, if I was if I was concerned, but but obviously like the the ideal would be to to dilate the, the pupil. I think it very much depends on why you're looking back there and what your thought process is. So I would probably start with a distant direct um, or or re- what we call retro illumination. So you use the shininess of the tapetum to um, help you to see if there's any opacity between you and the retina and that will help you with cataracts for example so if you stand at arm's distance from the patient um, put a light um, next to your eye or actually look through the ophthalmoscope but from a distance so distant direct you'll get a tapetal reflection and you'll see the outline of the pupil um, and you'll see the tapetum shining back at you and if you see any opacity in that any shadowing within that then you can then go on and look further and see if that's the cornea or the lens or the vitreous. Um, if your patient is um, otherwise well and has no other sort of systemic signs, then um, it may be that you can get enough information from not dilating that patient. I have to say it makes your life easier to do it, but may not always be necessary. And if you use the lowest intensity of light you can with your ophthalmoscope, the less of a PLR you'll get and the more tolerant the patient will be and the more you'll see without dilating. Um, Sometimes you can't. So if the patient has a history of glaucoma, then absolutely you mustn't dilate because um, when you dilate, you'll get a raised intraocular pressure. So there are some times when you just have to kind of go with it. Um, And really, unless your patient has sort of visual problems or systemic disease then the times that you really want to look at them is is your older geriatric patients for their routine vaccinations because you might pick up on early signs of hypertension at that point um and then you can you you might want to dilate them anyway 
you know, because you're concerned that they're elderly and you want a good look. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And 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 do you use uh, disposable drops to to dilate the, the yeah. eye? Yeah. So we just use single use tropicamide. Um, I think the general rule of thumb is if you have a multi-dose vial, it should only be open for one month. That's how long the preservatives last for. And just be very careful that you keep the tip clean so you don't cross-contaminate um, bacterial flora or bacterial pathogens, I guess, as well, between patients. Um, so, yeah, we, here we just use um, Minim's um and if you're going to sorry to interrupt, if you're going to dilate the eye, do you dilate both of them? Yeah. And and also, um, does that cause any uh, difficulties for the patient afterwards if they can't actually constrict their uh, their pupil? That's a really good question. A really good question. Um, so yes, I usually dilate both, and and if I'm going to take the time to look at one retina, then I'll, I'll take the time to look at both as the patient's there. Um, so yes, I would dilate both apart from if I had a pressure problem in one and not the other and then I would just dilate the one without the pressure problem um and um absolutely it can cause so tropicamide lasts for about six to eight hours um it's duration of action so for that period of time that the pupils dilated um especially in weather like we have today where it's very sunny um that patient might actually become photophobic because they can't constrict their pupil in the very bright light so what I generally tell owners is not to walk them until um, dusk or, or early evening when the light intensity is less. Um, but because it's quite short acting, we're not thinking about permanent damage to the retina due to light because it can't constrict. So um, it's usually short short acting. And um, if it's a rainy day, then they generally cope quite well. It's just if it's very sunny, they might squint a bit in the very bright light. One of my friends, uh, by accident, allegedly put uh, some some of that in his eye, and said it was quite difficult to read af- afterwards. So I imagine, yeah, uh, if we're if we're asking dogs to uh, to drive home, that's probably not <laughs> not a, not appropriate. I had a client once um, where I'd been giving uh, the dog atropine um, because of a uveitis, and um, the client, by accident, we know now. Um, rubbed her eye after administering the atropine to her dog and had a full neurological workup because she went to her GP with a dilated pupil. She had MRI scan and everything. Um, And it was only on questioning from the nurse in the recovery area after her MRI chatting about the dog that they realized what had happened and that it was just because of the atropine drop and and not because she had um, anything medically wrong with her so yeah (laughs) it's a surefire way to uh, get an early mri isn't it if you come in with (laughs) one dilated pupil and a normal exam yeah (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely so um so when we're having a look at the the uh, um when we have a look at the iris do, do you have a do you, do you look as in if you were looking down a, a microscope like an overarching view do you try and have a look at every area do you, do you or say when you're listening to a chest you might listen to the top middle or bottom mm-hmm. do you do you, do you have a, a pattern how you look at look at the eye with with a direct ophthalmoscope um so when i'm thinking about the direct ophthalmoscope looking at the retina absolutely because it's very easy to get lost you have a very 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 magnified view of um, quite a small area so I think about it like a patchwork quilt or when um, I was taught to look at um, a cytology slide where you sort of break it up into a grid and then move across your grid 
Um, that becomes slightly more challenging because the dog's eye moves, so then you forget where you were. Um, but generally speaking, um, what I try to do is to follow the vessels. So you have the dorsal venule, um, and then you have the two lateral and the medial venule, and then you can sort of split the tapetum in in half. So you have the medial half and the lateral half, um, and then the the same um, with the non-tapetal area. There's not a nice venule to split it, but I I try to put it into quadrants so. Because I think it's unrealistic to to find you know to go in absolutely every place with the dog being awake and and moving the eye around. So try and make sure I orientate myself and remember um, where I've been and remember to look at the parts that I haven't seen yet. Okay. And do you, do you think there are are common um, misunderstandings or misinterpretations in in looking at the retina itself? Um, one of the big ones is if you have a color dilute eye like myself in you where we have a blue iris um quite often the back of the eye the non-tapetal area will be non-pigmented um which means that you will see the choroidal vessels underneath so it will appear very red and so i've had um, patients referred for retinal hemorrhage when actually it's just been because there's no pigment there so you see the choroidal vessels and the way that i explain that to the students is if you imagine a hemorrhage you don't imagine it to be in a uniform pipe like structure you expect it to be higgledy piggledy um and and irregular in its margins and so if you have if you're wondering if you have a blue eye that will help you because you assume then that there'll be no pigment in the back um, and then if you look for the blood being within contained within sort of two linear structures like the walls of a blood vessel rather than being splodgy or or irregular then that can help you to determine between um a, a true hemorrhage and or a normal back of the eye just because there's no pigment excellent excellent um and the thing that i i think that i've always s- struggled with is it, it a, a bulging uh um, mm. a, a bulging optic nerve mm-hmm. what are they how can you describe how they how they look like So I think about the optic nerve um, like a garden hose going down a well. So um, you'll have blood vessels um, which are travelling, in in a dog anyway, you'll have blood vessels which will be like your garden hose and they'll travel over the wall of the well and dip down and into the sort of sulcus of the cup, if you like. And so if you think about extending your walls of the well, your hose pipe will come up and more towards you and so what I tend to do is I look with the direct um, because you have high magnification and you'll be able to see if those if those hose pipes are coming towards you and most of the time um, you'll have a normal eye as in the contralateral eye to compare it to there are times when it's a bilateral disease or the dog only has one eye that won't be helpful Um, but you can compare so usually speaking swelling of the optic nerve head is it can be bilateral but is usually asymmetrical in some way so you can then compare the other side um and actually on your ophthalmoscope there is a slit um 
function. So you have um, a big circle, a medium circle, a small circle, a slit, and then a grid. And the grid is just to have fun with the students and shine it on the wall. Um, that's what we always used to do with it anyway. Um, and then the the big and the little circles can help. And then the slit, um, so I use that to look at the retina and it's a little bit like, um, you can imagine shining the um, a, a beam of light in a slit on the wall. And if you have um, something sticking out of the wall, like a picture or a picture frame, um, you can see when you shine that light across it that the light distorts and bulges towards you. Um, that's what I do when I'm looking at the optic nerve head, um, is that I shine this this slit a, a across it and look for distortion of the light and, and then you, it accentuates the bulging towards you. So that can be helpful. Excellent, excellent. And and, and great tip, uh, you know, it, it's so so obvious. And I remember from, from being at uni as, as well, you know, there is always another eye. So if you're unsure, mm. have, a, have a look. And, and uh, I suppose for the most part, if it's the same, then 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 potentially that's that's normal yeah. because we we were saying earlier as well that you know it's it's most people um it's not by not knowing what the problem is mm. it's by not actually actually looking for for, yeah. the, for the problem um that that's excellent and so do you do, you do much more with your direct ophthalmoscope uh, to look at uh the 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 lens itself or or any other intraocular structures before you get out your uh, toner pen? Mm -hmm. um, no, I think um, one of the most useful things is when we're th thinking is this a cataract versus nuclear sclerosis is to do your distant direct is really helpful um, because you'll have a shadow if there's truly a cataract there. And if it's nuclear sclerosis, you'll get a nice tapetal reflection through it. Um, but no, then the next thing I would do would be to move on and, and take the pressure. Okay. And th there's a there's a variety of different methods, aren't there, to mm -hmm. take a pressure? And I imagine that toner pens are actually getting cheaper and cheaper. I mean, with technology mm. improving all the time. So I think we, we used to have a one of those weight systems. A shields. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> one, one of my one of my friends uh, got it on eBay like back in when eBay was just just starting. And, oh wow! And you have to hold the uh, hold the head up. You and and, uh, yeah. and and place on a little little weight lever onto onto the eye. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it becomes more challenging when you have a fractious cat, for example. But um, yeah, so they are designed for people, and so um, you have a little conversion chart, um, which, as you can imagine, as soon as you start converting things, becomes more and more inaccurate. Um, so. It certainly can help you and guide you, um, but is not as accurate as the Tonner pen or the Tonner vet um, that we have available to us now, which have been more calibrated to veterinary species. Um, yes, they are becoming um, slightly more affordable, but are still reasonably expensive. And there are two types. So applanation um, means indentation. That's the Tonner pen. Um, and that's where you... Um, press it very gently onto the surface of the cornea right in the axis, visual axis right in the center um, and then you have the rebound tonavet um, and that fires a little plastic pin um, and it depends on the recoil speed will help you to do the machine to determine the intraocular pressure of, of that patient so in 
in people do we have a, a jetter there is that yes yeah so i always uh, tell clients oh we're just doing a similar thing to the puff test well we're not because we're not using a puff of air because the patients don't tolerate it but that's what the owner would have sort of the the only time they would have come across that is at the opticians for the for the puff test yeah. has that been tried on dogs and cats and they just found that it's yeah it's, it's a quite no scary yeah, yeah it's a scary thing um so generally speaking they just don't tolerate it so that was moved away from um quite quickly <laughs> and the, and the both methods you described of measuring the the uh, intraocular pressure are they, are they pretty comparable that one Mm-hmm. there's not that one is better than the other they're, they're no just um there's lots of studies that have shown um accuracy with increasing intraocular pressure or decreasing in intraocular pressure between the two machines between different species um but f- all intents and purposes they are both very useful in dogs cats horses i mean even rabbits and things like that there's been some studies just mm. documenting their use so and should you be careful about how you're actually holding the the, mm. the patient when you're when you're measuring these? So should they be a, a, should they look up or look down and be careful about holding onto the neck or increasing any jugular pressure? I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, you can cause you can always cause a falsely increased intraocular pressure in any patient due to their positioning. So they should be sitting or standing with a head in a normal position no neck leads or um, pressure on the neck or jugulars and as minimal eyelid manipulation as possible. Um, And, uh, oh, I can't remember what I was going to say. Yeah, so they can give you increase in, artificially increased intraocular pressure. You can never get an artificially low intraocular pressure. So if you do a few readings and you get, for example, a 12, a 21 and a 22, you're much more likely to believe the 12 because you can't get an artificially lower pressure. Whereas the 20 and the 21 are probably because, I don't know, the dog was looking down or you had to open the eyelid because he was squinting or the owner was pressing on the neck whilst you're doing the pressure. And do you get uh, do you get sent referrals for just an increase in intraocular pressure that people have done and, and there's there's nothing else? or, or uh, Yes, yeah, sometimes. Um, and then the patient comes with... Uh, on pressure medication and what we do then is actually if we're not sure that it's a true pressure because there are no no other signs of glaucoma then um, we tend to keep them hospitalized and do an intraocular pressure curve um, with no medication to see what happens to those pressures excellent um, and is there is there anything else that we've we've missed out of the uh, the uh, ocular exam do you actually listen to the heart of your patients? I do occasionally, yes. <laughs> that was a bit cheeky, sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, but is there is there anything else that you would you would look at? So is that is that encompass? I encompass think that's everything? most things covered. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe what we should do is uh, is, is is wrap it up for for, mm. for this, and then we can we can actually chat uh, about certain other conditions uh, um, uh, subsequently. Um, So uh, I I think I'd just like to say many thanks, Charlotte, for your time today. Um, And thank you to the listeners for for listening. And and don't forget forget to hit that subscribe button um, so you can get these uh, podcasts on your device downloaded without even having to to think about it. It would be great if you could leave a five-star review on on iTunes. And and what we'll do is we'll put a a couple of notes and a couple of um, references uh, for, for actually an ocular exam. 
So don't don't forget to check out the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC and clinical podcast into your uh, into your search engine, it should should come up with that as a first as first hit. If you want to get in touch with me, then please email me at dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or you can find me on Twitter at Don Barfield. Um, until next time, many thanks for listening. <laughs>